A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the link to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Elders, past and present. Over the past two years, I've released Christmas episodes. One was about the Woolies bombing, and the other about Santa breaking into Pentridge, and both had their amusing sides. But this year's Christmas episode is sadly far darker, but I do think we owe Shirley Butler our remembrance. This podcast episode contains references to sexual assault and descriptions of violent death. Listener discretion is advised. It's 7.44 on the night of Wednesday the 14th of January 1953 and all across Sydney people have their radios tuned to station 2SM for a historic live broadcast. This isn't a message from the new Queen, charming young Elizabeth II. Neither is it a report on rising young cricket star Richie Benno, who's getting married tomorrow. Nor is it a radio address from Prime Minister Robert Menzies about when Australia will finally get television. Instead, in homes, cafes and cars all over the city and suburbs, people are ready for a new one-act mystery drama. This is a thriller like no other, and it's to be broadcast from Columbia's studios at Homebush, where leading Sydney actors and actresses have gathered to play their parts. Tonight's story isn't set on the Orient Express. Far from it. It's set entirely inside a Sydney tram carriage. Specifically tram number 1844 which, bound for Lane Cove, left Wynyard Station at five minutes to midnight last Christmas Eve. After the narrator sets the scene, we meet the passengers. There's a couple of young women in a hurry to get to Mass at North Sydney and a drunken reveller who bumps into several people and then bursts into the hit song Alfie Sen. There's a courteous man in his 40s who gives up his seat so a couple can sit together and there's also a voluble woman on her way home to play Santa Claus to her kids. 
Yet, all of these are merely supporting characters in the orbit of the leading lady. She sits next to a man in a grey suit and across from a sailor and a blonde. This main character is 21 years old. She's a striking brunette, hard to miss in a red blouse and a tight black skirt with a slit down one leg. She wears high-heeled black shoes, carries a beige coat and totes a handbag that's suede on top and patent leather around the base. The woman appears to have been drinking. This is the radio play's leading role, but she isn't played by a leading lady. She isn't played by anyone. That's because she's a ghost. A ghost who, sometime after the tram crosses the Sydney Harbour Bridge, simply vanishes from view. Where does she get off? Where does she go? Who does she see? And who sees her? These are the questions raised by this one-act drama and heard by hundreds of thousands of Sydney-siders. During this world-first true crime radio reenactment, New South Wales Police Superintendent Joe Ramos has told the audience, quote, This is not fiction. It is a glimpse of tragedy, one of the most vicious murders we have seen in this state. We hope someone who travelled on the tram will hear something which will bring back a recollection of the journey. In the public interest, I appeal to anyone who was on the tram to contact the police at B030. Hopefully, someone listening remembers something. Something that will lead to the arrest of the vicious killer who murdered Shirley Butler at Waverton three weeks ago. Murdered her just a stone's throw from her home in the early hours of Christmas Day, 1952. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part one of the two-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Christmas Murder. Part two will be released on Boxing Day, but if you're a Patreon supporter or Apple subscriber, you can hear it right now ad-free. Being a Forgotten Australia supporter or subscriber costs about the same as a midi of beer per month, and it helps me pay for research materials to ensure that no stones left unturned in making these episodes. And as a thank you, supporters and subscribers get early ad-free access to every episode and special bonus shows, such as the most recent release, The Wild and Weird Tale that is Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Spiritualist Tour Down Under. A big, big thank you to recent Patreon supporters Carol Woodman, Lachlan Curry, Pat Saunders, George Evett, Matt Moore and Carl Smith. Thanks also to everyone who subscribed via Apple. And if you'd like a shout out, drop me a line at ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com. A special shout out also to Tony Mott, a longtime supporter who recently made a very generous contribution towards research costs. Tony's based in Adelaide, where he runs an eco-clean solar franchise. So in these energy tight times, if you're in the city of churches and want your solar panels operating at their optimum, Tony's your man. Find him at www.ecocleansolar.com.au. And that website's actually good for just about everywhere in Australia, directing you to your local EcoClean operator. Christmas is a special time of the year, but it's also just another day. We can still come to grief due to bad luck, bad choices and bad people. Christmas 1952 was certainly a reminder of that. Christmas Eve dawned hot in Sydney. Retailers were rubbing their hands in glee because the past two days had seen record sales. The post-war scarcity was finally a thing of the past. This year, total Christmas revenue was expected to top £60 million. 
and on this last shopping day, long queues had already formed outside city stores half an hour before they opened. Shop owners would describe the ensuing rush as the greatest human scramble they'd ever seen, and 16 people collapsed in these consumer crushes. Fortunately, none was seriously injured. But the city was so busy that cars on George and Pitt streets slowed to a crawl as pedestrians spilled off the footpaths and jaywalked to their heart's content. Trains were crowded, with officials expecting an exodus of some 100,000 people from the city to coastal pleasure grounds and the cooler climbs of the Blue Mountains. Pubs were packed with workers taking a sneaky break to knock back a shandy or two. The police cells were also jammed, holding some 120 people who'd gotten an even earlier start on the Christmas cheer. Sympathetic police now handing out headache powders to these hungover sad sacks. At the CIB, Chief Superintendent James Wiley assembled 200 detectives to congratulate them on a record year of crime detection. In his special Christmas address, he said they should be proud of themselves, having made arrests in all 32 murder cases that year and 79 arrests in 80 manslaughter cases. Chief of Detectives Superintendent Joe Ramos seconded those congratulations and offered his best season's wishes to all the ranks. Yet, on Christmas Eve, the Sydney newspaper The Sun ran an editorial that sounded a very sombre note. The headline? Christmas shouldn't be a death sentence. Its grim reflection began, quote, in the midst of this week's festivities, it is a sobering thing to think that a group of ordinary people who are looking forward today to Christmas and its happiness are doomed to die abrupt and violent deaths before the holidays are over. The article was about the inevitable road toll, and it railed against reckless drivers, but it also appeared prescient given how much blood was going to be spilled in the next 24 hours. Twenty-one-year-old Shirley Butler left her home in Euroka Street, Waverton, at six in the morning on Christmas Eve. She wasn't leaving to queue up at David Jones or Mark Foy's, and nor was she heading for an early opener to raise a glass. Shirley was heading for her job. While she dressed well and her looks recalled Ava Gardner, this young woman's work was far from glamorous. As a machinist at the sprawling Colonial Sugar Refinery Company's huge industrial site in Piermont, Shirley spent hour after hour sewing sugar bags. Her days were filled with this hot, repetitive work. Shirley lived for her nights. High-spirited, particularly when she had her pay packet, Shirley loved going out to drink wine, meet sailors, and enjoy the city's Chinese restaurants and its fun spots like Luna Park. These nights, eating and drinking, meeting men and kicking up her heels, were Shirley's escape. As much as possible, Shirley wanted to stretch the time between leaving work and returning to her family house in Euroka Street in Waverton. Shirley's parents had split when she was about six years old. For the next decade, Shirley and her older sister Lois were raised by their mother Ethel and by their grandmother. Things weren't so bad in the little cottage they shared. But five years ago, Granny had died. Their mother Ethel drank and Lois soon moved out. But the little house, which was going to rack and ruin, became more claustrophobic when Ethel's brother, Shirley's Uncle John, moved in. John Bull slept in the front room, propped on a couch. That left Shirley and Ethel to share a bed in the only other room of the house. Bloodthirsty fleas zipped all over the place, and the front and backyards were rubbish-strewn wastelands. The Euroka Street house 
just wasn't a home at all. Shirley had recently tried to get away. In the three months leading up to December, she'd moved out and in with her best friend Mavis Fink, who lived in the city. But Shirley's mother had ordered her to come home. So Shirley's nights were all the more important to her. She was a good time girl, and she and Mavis loved painting the town red. As Truth would put it vividly, quote, Shirley was fond of cheap wine and the company of naval ratings. She was friendly, even to strangers, but could be downright abusive if the mood took her. Her talk was the rich, spicy slang of the city. Her world was a world of pubs and chop suey joints, pleasure grounds and parks. While Shirley sounded like a loose woman in the talk of the times, nothing could be further from the truth. On this, everybody was in agreement. While she'd had sex with a man once, when she was 17 years old, Shirley had remained chaste ever since. It was true she'd made friends with hundreds of Australian and international sailors who were visiting Sydney. She had some 40 pen pals, many of them serving in Korea. But Shirley also drew a firm line. If a man tried to move things along physically, she shut them down quick smart with a sharp tongue and a slapping hand. Shirley finished her shift on Christmas Eve at around 2.30 in the afternoon. She went to a city hotel lounge for a few cold beers with her friend Mavis and Mavis's sailor boyfriend. Mavis was a knockout. So good looking, she could be a model. But though just 24, Mavis was also testament to getting in too deep too quick. She'd married a sailor, a different sailor to the one she was with on Christmas Eve, and she was now estranged from that man. As for Shirley, she wasn't getting herself into any marriage messes like that. Shirley, Mavis and Mavis's date went from the pub to have dinner at the Canton Cafe on George Street. There, in this Chinese restaurant, around 7 o'clock, Shirley made a date with a sailor she knew named John Ray. She arranged to meet John at 9 the following morning at Waverton Station. From there, they'd go and have a Christmas Day swim. At quarter past 7, Mavis and her date said goodbye to Shirley. They were off to the pictures, but Mavis arranged to meet Shirley later that night at a milk bar at Circular Quay. Shirley hung out with two other girlfriends in the Chinese cafe until quarter past eight. Then they all took the ferry, bound for Luna Park. Going across the harbour, the girls met a young sailor named Ray Hinkler and a Redfern apprentice named Maxwell Brown. The men had a couple of bottles of wine with them. Shirley and one of her girlfriends paired off with the men to drink under the harbour bridge. Shirley was with Max, the other girl with Ray. Shirley and Max drank their wine, had a few kisses, and then got a ferry back to Circular Quay because Shirley was hungry. At around 11, they had hamburgers and a coffee. Then, in the doorway of a shop in nearby Crane Place, Max tried to seduce Shirley, and she told him off. He walked away, leaving for a billiard saloon. The last Max saw of Shirley, she was walking alone towards George Street. It had later be reported that Shirley went to the milk bar to find Mavis, but with Mavis running late, she left. Shirley, visibly drunk, was seen getting onto the Lane Cove-bound tram at Wynyard at around 11.45, but the tram didn't pull out immediately. Instead, it stayed where it was for 10 minutes as more passengers piled on. Then the tram rattled north across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, people chatting amiably and that drunk man singing Auf Wiedersehen the hugely popular Vera Lynn song that was inescapable this Christmas season. At some point after coming off the Sydney Harbour Bridge, Shirley Butler had gotten off the tram. 
Nine hours later, Shirley's friend, the sailor John Ray, turned up at Waverton Station as arranged. It was a sultry Christmas morning. Great weather for a refreshing dip. But Shirley was a no-show. John waited for half an hour and then he went to Shirley's house. This was about 500 yards south on the other side of the railway near the viaduct over Euroka Street. Knocking on the door of the tumble-down cottage, John was met by Shirley's uncle, John Bull. John said his niece hadn't come home last night. Young sailor John Ray took this news with a bit of a shrug. Shirley had probably just had too much to drink and was now sleeping it off at a friend's place in the city. With that, John Ray went about his Christmas day. Over the next three hours, trains carrying thousands of people rattled north over the viaduct, and many passengers would have glanced down on a weedy, sloping, vacant lot. This paddock was also a well-used thoroughfare, with dozens of people that morning sauntering up or down its steps on their way to Christmas services and family get-togethers. Yet no one, rail passenger or park pedestrian, saw anything out of the ordinary. Maybe they were too distracted by that morning's terrible news. Just before 12.30am on the other side of the harbour in Moore Park, police in a patrol car had seen a sedan drive past a tram on the wrong side. The cops followed the speeding vehicle and on Gardner's Road, rocketing along at 70 miles per hour, the driver had swerved right to pass a parked car. But he lost control, mounted the footpath and wrapped the car around a telegraph pole. The car's cabin was flattened and its chassis bent into a U-shape. The terrific force of the impact snapped the pole at ground level and broke it in half 12 feet further up also. The sedan, which had been stolen, was packed with 10 teenagers and young adults. Five died, three would survive serious injuries. This was a bloody start to Christmas 1952. Twelve hours later, 17-year-old Frank Henry Leary, who lived at Beacon Hill, was taking those steps through the vacant lot above Euroka Street by the viaduct. He was on his way to a friend's place. But Frank stopped. He saw what everyone else had missed. Clothes in the tall weeds. Stepping off the path, Frank saw a dark-haired woman laying on her back in the brush. She was bloody and she wasn't moving. Frank ran down the steps and alerted Harry and Winifred Cop, whose house on Euroka Street adjoined the vacant lot. Harry rushed to the scene. The woman looked dead. And he knew her. It was Shirley Butler. She was just 75 yards from her house, which was two doors down from Harry's place. Harry went to tell Shirley's mother and uncle and to alert the police. Sydney detectives who'd been about to sit down to their Christmas dinners took phone calls from the CIB. They said goodbye to their families and converged on the Waverton scene. The government medical officer, Dr C.E. Percy, arrived at 20 past two and he put the time of death at between midnight and five in the morning. Shirley's body lay on weedy, rocky ground. Her coat was 15 yards away. The cause of death, Dr Percy believed, was strangulation but Shirley had suffered terribly before being throttled. She had a bleeding and broken nose and a depressed fracture of the upper jaw. There was a deep two-inch wound to the back of her head. It appeared consistent with her being hit with a brick or perhaps falling against a brick wall and hitting her head. The cuts on her arms and ribs, though, appeared to have been made by Shirley being dragged across the rough ground. 
this, the fact there was very little blood beneath Shirley's head, and that there was no brick or heavy object nearby, suggested strongly that she'd been killed elsewhere and moved. While Shirley's bra and underpants had been torn, her skirt unzipped and her blouse disarranged with her legs parted, Dr. Percy did not believe she'd been raped. Rather, the scene had been staged to make it look like a sexual attack. This hadn't been a robbery either. Shirley still had a diamond ring on one finger of her right hand, and her purse was beneath her body and it still contained four pounds of her Christmas wages. Detectives were frustrated because it had rained heavily in the early hours. If there'd been any footprints, they would have been washed away. But as far as conditions allowed, there were also no signs of a struggle. Another indicator that Shirley had been killed elsewhere. At 2.30, right as Dr. Percy was beginning his examination of Shirley, across the other side of the harbour at the Tui's Brewery in Elizabeth Street in the city, a worker cleaning a vat collapsed when he was overcome by carbon dioxide gas. Two of his mates went to his aid, and they too succumbed. From 2.30 until 3 o'clock, the three men were comatose in the vat. Coming to their rescue, an ambulance man and another brewery worker also collapsed. The two workers, who'd gone to their friend's aid, died. And between them, they left six children fatherless. Christmas 1952 had served up its third tragedy. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Have you done all of your Christmas shopping yet? There are only, insert number here, shopping days left till Christmas. To make things super easy for you, I've gone and written a new book called Hanging Ned Kelly, and it's a rip-roaring ride into the underbelly of colonial Australia, with a cast of characters you have to read to believe. From Ned's hangman, Elijah Upjohn, and his monstrous predecessor, Michael Gately, to a bevy of serial killers and absolutely crazed doctors and phrenologists, these shady sorts were too gruesome for the history books we studied in school. Hanging Ned Kelly is published by Affirm Press, an independent Australian company, so you'll be buying local. It's a beautiful hardback with plenty of illustrations, and it's available wherever books are sold. Dimmix, Booktopia, Big W, and of course your local independent bookstores. So, it'll make a cracking gift for yourself or someone you love. Okay, on with the show. 25 detectives were assigned to the Shirley Butler case, and that number would soon expand to 40. They interviewed Shirley's mother and uncle, though details of what they said were not made public. The police also spoke to Shirley's girlfriends and to some of the sailors she'd known. Detectives found Max Brown, the man Shirley had been with on Christmas Eve, and they cleared him, along with other men she'd known. From the information gathered, detectives quickly built up a detailed picture of Shirley's movements on Christmas Eve. That was, up until the point she got off the tram. Police wanted anyone who'd seen her between 8pm on Christmas Eve and the early hours of Christmas Day to come forward. Newspapers weren't published on the 25th of December. 
that Boxing Day saw huge coverage of the triple Christmas tragedies. Shirley's story got page three of the Daily Telegraph, its front page given over to photos of that terrible car accident. Under the headline, Scene of Vicious Killing in Waverton, there was a panoramic photo of Euroka Street. It showed the vacant lot far right with an arrow indicating body found here. Far left, there was another arrow, entrance to girl's home, showing the shadowy place that Shirley had lived. The story detailed her last known movements and was accompanied by her photograph. Despite the fact Shirley had not been raped, the Sun ran the headline, Sex Maniac Murderer of Girl, Police Believe and reported that detectives, by then working more than 24 hours without much sleep or food, had come up with a promising, if horrifying, angle. Quote, It has been suggested that a man who has been sneaking into bedrooms in several homes on the North Shore in recent weeks may have been responsible, but so far there is nothing to confirm this theory. In the days before Shirley's murder, there had been three attacks on the Lower North Shore. This dangerous individual was very distinctive in his looks and his manner. On Monday the 29th of December, police said they were looking for a man of Latin appearance. He went by the name of Dick or Richard. He was 25 to 30, well built and handsome. He had black hair, brushed back, stood 5'7 or 5'8 and he spoke with a foreign accent. This man had been well dressed in a two-piece navy blue suit with a white open neck shirt and black shoes. But what really stood out was his Hitler-type moustache. This mustachioed man had been at parties on the Lower North Shore in the days before Shirley's murder, telling people he was Russian and had only been in Australia for seven months. Apart from the Führer fur above his upper lip, he made himself more memorable still by performing close-up magic for party guests. This man could do sleight-of-hand stuff, make a penny vanish and do a string and key bit, and he also played tunes on a comb covered with a piece of paper. Police knew that after a party on the 22nd of December, the man with the Hitler moustache had followed a female guest named Edna Nielsen to her house around the corner. He'd knocked on the door, and when she answered, he'd started strangling her until he'd been pulled off by her male friend and chased from the premises. Hours later, on the 23rd of December, at 4.30 in the morning, this same man broke into the Waverton house of Olga Mary Anderson. He'd been wearing a handkerchief as a mask, but it only partly covered his face. Olga woke up to this man standing over her, holding her lips closed. He said, don't move, or he'd kill her. She struggled, and then he started to strangle her. Olga kneed him, got free, and then he might have hit her with a bottle. She wasn't sure, but she was dazed, and later her jaw would be very sore. Olga didn't know how, but she got to her mother in her mother's bedroom, and the man came in and menaced both women with a bottle. He said he was going to kill them. He demanded money, but when a neighbour stirred, having heard the commotion, the masked man left. The Sydney Morning Herald reported the attack on Olga Anderson in its Christmas Eve edition under the headline, Man Terrorises Two Women and Escapes. What hadn't been reported, at least not yet, was that the man had, in between these two attacks, broken into yet another house. There, he'd assaulted a man, threatened to kill him, and mumbled something about killing a woman. Despite this most promising of local leads, Sydney detectives also extended their investigation up into Queensland. This was because Shirley's murder bore a strong similarity to the recent Brisbane slaying of Betty Shanks. This infamous case was then just three months old. 
On the night of the 19th of September 1952, 22-year-old Betty Shanks had gotten off a tram, started her short walk home and been found beaten to death in a garden early the next morning. It had sparked Queensland's most intensive criminal investigation to date and Sydney newspapers speculated that Betty Shanks's killer had come south and murdered Shirley Butler. In the days after Shirley's death, Truth interviewed her mother, Ethel, and plastered the story over its front page under the headline, I hope he hangs, cries girl's mother. Ethel Butler had actually said hanging would be too good for the fiend. She told the paper, quote, We were looking forward to a happy Christmas and had planned to visit my brother at Lithgow. I had intended to meet Shirley after work on Christmas Eve, but thought she might want to celebrate with her friends, so didn't bother her. I was a bit worried when she didn't get home that night, but thought she must have decided to stay the night with her friends. Shirley's uncle, John Bull, had moved out of the Eroka Street house immediately after the murder, saying he didn't feel good about being there. Ethel Butler, meanwhile, was staying with her daughter Lois in Glebe. Lois also spoke to Truth to say she was convinced the killer was a sex maniac, who'd clearly gotten the jump on her sister. Quote, Shirley would know what to do if a man looked like attacking her. Her only trouble was that she thought good of everyone. Lois said she'd been suffering hysteria since her sister's murder and had to take sleeping pills. She said, I feel I'll never trust another man again. In 1952 in Australia, recently arrived immigrants, most of them from Europe, were dubbed New Australians. And on New Year's Eve, in their search for the man with the Hitler moustache and the foreign accent, police raided numerous parties where new Australians had gathered. This scattergun approach didn't shake loose their suspect. But detectives also took a more painstaking and methodical approach when they began poring over thousands of photographs held by the Department of Immigration, setting aside any that matched the description of the man they were after. The police's other big hope was that more tram passengers would come forward with more information. One man did and said he'd seen Shirley get off alone at the intersection of Miller Street and the Pacific Highway in North Sydney. The last he'd seen Shirley, she was sitting on a seat near the post office. Detectives desperately needed to know what happened next. As the new year got underway, they urged anyone who'd attended Mass at St Francis Xavier's Church on Christmas Eve to contact them. There'd been services at midnight, 12.30 and 1am someone may have seen Shirley with a man. A senior detective reminded readers of the Sydney Morning Herald she was strikingly dressed and would be quite noticeable. Police also wanted to speak with anyone who'd been at a party in the Waverton area that night. The detective saying, As it was Christmas Eve, there were lots of people about and someone must have noticed Miss Butler. The slog went on, police doing interviews door-to-door in Waverton and North Sydney. Poignantly, Shirley Butler was still alive in the minds of her many male pen friends, and their letters kept arriving at the Eroka Street house. Shirley's mother and uncle stored these letters in a cardboard box for the police. Detectives would go through them, finding nothing that would help their investigation. And later, Shirley's friend, Mavis Fink, had the horrible task of writing to these pen friends with the terrible news about Shirley. On the 4th of January, the Sunday Telegraph ran a story about Waverton residents living in fear after the murder of Shirley Butler and the other attacks in their neighbourhood. The article said the man they were seeking had, quote, attacked another victim whom police have not named. 
This was tantalising. Who was it? And where exactly had he or she been attacked? Tom Jacobs is obscure now, but in 1952, Radio 2SM's news director was the brave boy wonder of Sydney Broadcasting. Tom had been a young print journalist until the end of the Second War, when he'd made the jump to radio. Just 24, he had an amazing scoop about the then highly controversial process of shock treatment, which was being used to return long-term mentally ill patients to sanity. Tom also had a first when he interviewed Sydney Harbour bridge workers on top of the arches during a howling gale. Another first, Tom became the first man to broadcast orchestral recitals performed by convicted men, including murderers, playing inside Goulburn Jail. These broadcasts from jail would become a regular radio feature, and they were copied widely in the United States. Tom had also broadcast from a yacht in a raging storm in the Tasman, and then become Director of Radio Communications for the recently launched annual Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race. Returning to the subject of the insane, Tom had worked for three months inside Callan Park Mental Asylum to bring the circumstances of inmates to the outside world in his broadcasts. Tom had launched an appeal for aftercare hostels for mental patients, and within two hours of one of his detailed reports, £10,000 had been raised, which is about half a million dollars adjusted for inflation. Then, in 1949, Tom had travelled to 26 countries and done 80 interviews with the likes of Winston Churchill, George Bernard Shaw, former US First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, former US President Herbert Hoover, General Franco and the Pope. Now, Tom, who was never short of a good idea, had another brainwave. How about broadcasting a reenactment of Shirley Butler's last tram ride? Tom and 2SM executive Kevin Byrne presented this idea to police, who agreed it was worth a shot. So for days, Tom and veteran radio serial scriptwriter Tony Veach interviewed detectives. They turned everything the police had learned about the tram journey from the few passengers they'd spoken with into a script that would highlight details to further jog memories. Unfortunately, as far as my inquiries have gone, there doesn't appear to be an extant copy of that broadcast from 70 years ago. But the National Film and Sound Archive does hold the script. Thanks to contributions from Patreon supporters and Apple subscribers, I paid to have these pages digitised. And a big shout out also to the National Film and Sound Archive's James Dyer for his excellent assistance with my request. The play to be broadcast on 2SM was simply titled Shirley. Cast members received their scripts in sealed envelopes when they arrived at Columbia Studios at Homebush on the morning of Wednesday the 14th of January. The cast comprised then household names. Alan Trevor, Margaret Christensen, Marie Clark, Bruce Stewart, Quinny Ashton, David Eady and Laurel Mather. For the sake of the performers, scriptwriter Tony Veach had given the tram passengers names, but these would not be referred to in dialogue. The whole point of the play was for these people to recognise themselves and come forward. The scriptwriter had also provided thumbnail sketches to assist the players to get into character. There was Nolene, described as fat and jolly, and Moira, her more serious friend. These young women were on their way to midnight mass in North Sydney. Stan, a man of about 40, was drunk but well-spoken. Then there was Ethel, a gushy housewife, on her way home to play Santa to her children. Clara was a slightly passe blonde who was sitting next to a sailor who didn't get a name or description. 
The NFSA's copy of the Shirley script was the one used by actress Marie Clark, who played Moira. The call time was 10am, and the script is hand-annotated, with several sections of dialogue struck out. These would have been for time, because the play had to fit into the 15 minutes before the 8 o'clock news. But these deletions were also likely the result of Tom Jacobs, writer Tony Vetch, 2SM executive Kevin Byrne, and police superintendent Joe Ramos cutting irrelevancies that might distract or potential inaccuracies that might mislead. The play started at 7.44 with a little bit of the tune to Off We Descend. Then there was theme music, the swelling sound of city traffic, and narrator Alan Trevor intoning, Sydney, a city by night, and Shirley Butler is going to her death. This hard-hitting intro, like something out of a film noir, was followed by the 7.45 time chimes. Then listeners heard Tom Jacobs saying this broadcast had been worked up with police to faithfully depict Shirley's last journey. The audience was asked, where were you on Christmas Eve around midnight? Were you on this tram? Quote, the police ask you to try to remember, and if you can, if there is anything you think police should know, will you please ring B030 now? The narrator continued. Shirley Butler was very much alive when she climbed the steps to the tram platform at Wynyard about a quarter to twelve on Christmas Eve. He said she'd been celebrating and described her clothing and her appearance. Quote, As I said, she looked rather tired. There had been too many Christmas Eve parties. It had been a long day. Listeners heard the murmuring of background tram passengers. Then, the focus was on Nolene and Moira as they scrabbled about whether they'd make it on time to midnight mass. The conductor wandered by, collecting fares, and the narrator told us that the tram finally pulled out of Wynyard at 11.55. Quote, Shirley Butler sat two seats away from our young friends, sat and stared in front of her, quite quiet, but very tired. A man in a grey suit was sitting beside her. Then Stan, the boisterous drunk, took over for a while, offering cigarettes to other passengers, including Shirley, or, as he called her, you in the red blouse. Shirley didn't accept the smoke. The tram went across the bridge, the sailor and the blonde named Clara looking at Shirley. Clara reckoned, Her ladyship looks a bit weary, don't you think, ducks? The sailor said, I know her. She knocks around with the tall girl. I've often seen them with sailors at Wynyard. Then, the tram was at Milson's Point, and a lot of people were getting off. This was when good old Stan started belting out Off We Descend, with Moira and Nolene commenting on just how lovely his voice was. Then, the narrator came back. Somewhere between Wynyard Station and Crow's Nest, the girl in the red blouse got off the tram. Our tram. It was Shirley Butler's habit when going home to get off the tram at North Sydney Station or at Mount Street. At Christmas Eve, did she leave the tram at either of these stops, or did she travel further? The play concluded with more hard-boiled menace from the narrator. Our two girlfriends from the Lane Cove tram are a little late for their midnight mass. The church is like a winking jewel in the dark bowl of North Sydney. Here are lights, here is music and the spirit of Christmas. Outside, there is darkness and the spirit of evil. Now, Shirley Butler dies, violently, cruelly. Can you help us find her killer? Superintendent Ramus came on air to make his plea. Shirley has been described to you. You have travelled with her on the tram. Anyone who'd seen her get off the tram had to come forward. Superintendent Ramus concluded, 
Ladies and gentlemen, it is in the public interest we seek your help. As a play, it was both utterly banal, a handful of characters chattering on a tram, and utterly compelling. Any of these real-life people might hold the key to solving a murder mystery. 2SM and the police said that, to their knowledge, this broadcast was a world first. 20 police had been standing by the phones at the CIB, and they got 40 calls within two and a half hours, and people were still ringing at midnight. Based on information received, detectives visited the homes of 10 people that evening. Superintendent Ramos said the broadcast had been a great success, and the show was front page of the Daily Telegraph the next morning, with a photo showing Ramos, Tom Jacobs, Tony Vetch and Kevin Byrne in the studio. Within 24 hours, detectives had interviewed five people who'd been on the tram. These were the out-of-uniform sailor who'd sat next to Shirley, the man who'd been singing, the blonde woman and two other men. Yet there were still more people to find, including two nurses who'd been in blue uniforms and seated in front of Shirley. There'd also been four young men who'd been chortling at the drunk singer. The Daily Telegraph published an illustration of the scene inside the tram with question marks over the faces of these still unidentified witnesses. Within days of Shirley's murder, Truth Newspaper was saying the police were at a dead end. By mid-January, they were banging this drum ever louder, as the paper often did when an unsolved homicide was added to the murder mystery list. Headline, They're baffled again. Killer still free. What's wrong with our police force? The radio play, Truth argued, was more fast than drama. It called these Hollywood-style methods and said they had produced no results. The paper was wrong about that. It did succeed in eventually identifying a total of 13 people. The problem was, they couldn't really tell the police anything of use. Detectives were satisfied, though, that Shirley had gotten off at North Sydney, as described by that first tram passenger who'd come forward. They surmised Shirley had taken her usual route home, along Blues Point Road, into Union Street, and then into Euroka Street. Occasionally, Shirley would walk other routes or take a cab from North Sydney Station. Chasing up on this possibility, detectives had canvassed householders and taxi drivers, but to no avail. Yet the biggest revelation didn't come from strangers who'd seen Shirley. In a startling twist, it came from inside her own home. In the third week of January 1953, the Sydney Morning Herald reported, quote, Detectives revealed yesterday that a man was disturbed walking through the butler's home early on Christmas morning. He was a stranger in the household. Police said they were certain he was not a burglar. They would not disclose whether he had attacked anyone. According to this report, there was an intruder in Shirley's house at the very same time she was being murdered at an unknown location, before being dumped just 75 yards away. What did that cryptic report mean? And why weren't police disclosing any more information? I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part one of The Christmas Murder. Part two will be released on Boxing Day, but if you're a Patreon supporter or Apple subscriber, you can hear it right now, ad-free. Like I said, subscribing costs about the same as a midi of beer a month, and it helps me make this show. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting.
Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.